listening to the Advanced Leadership Podcast from the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Now, here's your host, Lee Clamp. Well, welcome to another edition of the Advanced Leadership Podcast. Uh, we have a special, special guest with us today, uh, Marshall Blaylock, pastor of the oldest Southern Baptist Church on the planet. Marshall, thanks for being with us today. Hey, thanks a lot. Good to be able to visit with you always. Now, tell us a little bit about First Baptist Church, Charleston. Tell us, tell us a little bit about where you serve. Well, it is kind of funny. It's true. It is the oldest Southern Baptist Church on the planet, but I didn't start it, so don't don't think that that's a, a part of my story. Um, it started in 1682, uh, actually in Kittery, Maine and was Massachusetts at that point, actually. And then they moved here to Charleston in 1696. So we, we have a pretty good relocation story, I suppose. And then uh, have been in the same spot since 1699. So it's been around a while. And um, wow. it's also, um, you can talk about the history and all, and there's a lot of great things that happened there. There's some bad things that happened there. A lot with the history, but in the end, when I, when I think about our church, I think about it started with a vision for missions and, and um, a vision for an evangelistic heart for the people, but also a desire to be disciples of Jesus, educated disciples of Jesus. And, um, and to this day, through ups and downs, thick and thin, wars, earthquakes, hurricanes, fires, you name it, um, it's prevailed by God's grace. And so today, uh, even though it's an old, old church, uh, we have um, still a, a living congregation that's serving God's purpose. We have nine people overseas with the mission board. Uh, we have 500 plus kids in our school every day, a Christian school on our campus. We have um, a growing number of, of folks in our church. We have, a, it's so funny, we're so uh, old um, and our service is a little more classical and formal than most Baptist churches, honestly. But uh, we have a lot of young adults that just keep coming to our church and a lot of, and we have overloaded with kids right now, built a new building, fit them all in, but uh, a lot of good things going on. But it's so funny because they say, yeah, this, uh, this old service, this classical style service seems more authentic. And I joke, I say, yeah, we're so far behind. We're ahead now. Uh, so it is <laughs> it kind of It finally cool, came back around. <laughs> finally came back around. It's like NASCAR. I'm, I'm, I get the free pass. So, uh, so actually, uh, we're just grateful God's at work, and that's our goal, to serve him, and we sort of have a, a, an old style, and we're in an old place, uh, but God's at work in new ways, and we're thankful for that. Well, I'll tell you, Marshall, First Baptist is uh, is an incredible uh, church. I mean, you guys were the poster child for the Heart for Schools uh, initiative when we first birthed out a few years ago, and now we've got one-third of our public schools in South Carolina that are actually um, being served by a local church within the state that's the South Carolina Baptist Church. And um, you guys were instrumental in the whole tragedy surrounding um, uh, the Emanuel 9 shooting in being a healing place for the city, uh, especially in the area of, um, of race relations. And uh, you have led the charge in that. And uh, you're just a solid leader. And I just want to tell you, you know, how much I appreciated uh, the work that you've done personally and the work there uh, at the church. And um, and so um, it's just an honor to be able to talk with you now, because in recent days, 
uh, you've been um, a, a member and now chairman of the Sexual Abuse Task Force nationally that's going to implement the recommendations that came this past uh, year. And so before we get into that, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, I, I just want I just want the people to know, who is Marshall Blaylock? Tell us a little bit about your family real quick, and then tell us about um, uh, maybe something they didn't know about you. Well, I'm old enough now that all my children are adults. They're all married. I've got uh, two grandchildren that are um, with my oldest son, and and then we have one on the way with my youngest son, and our daughter and her husband live in, in Atlanta. I've got one family living in France, and, and uh, the other family living right here with us. So that's our life stage at this point. We get to be able wow. to see grandkids having a good time there. Um, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, First Baptist Church of Charleston is sort of known for being kind of formal and all this stuff. And, and you know, I, I, I can put on the suit and I can be formal and we do all that. But uh, I think uh, people may not realize we're, we're just folks who want to serve Christ and love him mm. and follow his will and, and share the good news and, and reach the world. Um, uh, folks may not know that uh, Kathy and I adopted our daughter uh, years ago um, when she was uh, a little baby uh, from South America. And um, it was that part of that story is that uh, my wife, Kathy, kept saying, I want to pray that that." Uh, God will um, enable us to have, be able to have this, adopt this little girl. And I was praying, Lord, help my wife see that we can't afford to have this little girl. <laughs> and so we had a prayer war and she won. And um, I love it. And uh, the fact is, it was true. We couldn't afford her. <laughs> little girls are hard to afford, period. But uh, it, I tell you, there's been no, um, no more um, joyful experience than to have the privilege of our family having her um, adopted into it her brothers and all, all the whole family I just loves her dearly and we're so grateful for her and we're thankful for the way God's at work in her life even today so that's uh that's one thing people may not know that we have a, an adopted child we we encourage folks to consider adoption but you got to be called to it it's really important to be called to it because it's not mm -hmm. for everybody um, but if the Lord's in it for you um, it's a it's, for us it's been uh, life-changing, beautiful experience, but I'm a lot poorer today because of my <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, it seems it seems like God listens to our wives more than He listens to us. What? what I mean, I don't know if that's theological or not, Marshall. Just say she had it right on this one. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not complaining. I'm glad she did. I'm glad you came around, man. Well, listen, let's uh, let's jump into this. So. The Sexual Abuse Task Force, you served as vice chairman for that, to bring some recommendations to our uh, national convention uh, in this area. I, I just love to hear from you on a personal level. Uh, what did you learn through this process? You've been closer to this uh, more than anybody else uh, that I know of in South Carolina. And I, I just love to hear from you. Like, what, what, what are some things that you learned through this process? Well, you, you probably are aware of the fact that I had no particular expertise to be on this task force. There were people on the task force who were experts in the field, either legally or in counseling, that kind of thing. Um, and there were four of us who were pastors and all four of us, when we were asked to do this, all said, you know, we, you know, we, we're against abuse and we'd like to help, but we don't have any expertise. And yet um, we all believe we were supposed to, we, we were asked to do it and we agreed to do it because we felt like the Lord was in it. Um, but I will tell you, it was it was an education uh, 
um, that was uh, at light speed in many ways, because I, as much as I, I thought I understood about how sexual abuse can happen in churches, how it's important to prevent it. And, and of course, our church, like most churches, have policies about preventing sexual abuse. Um, but I had no, I had no idea how pervasive abuse has come in church life. I had no idea how often it's mishandled. And that's the part that most disturbed me in a way. But I also didn't realize how devastating it is for the folks who, who have been victimized by sexual abuse. And so here's the process. Here's what we did. We, we read books. Uh, we read books about sexual abuse. We read books from survivors who told their stories. We had a number of meetings where we just sat and um, listened to survivors of sexual abuse tell their stories. And uh, there's, there's, it's, it's very difficult for someone to tell that story without feeling the trauma over and over again. And so it was a very a personal moment for them to share, but it was, and we didn't deserve them to tell their story, but they did. And it helped us to understand, helped me personally, but all, the whole task force to understand how, how, how it can happen and how churches mishandle it. So, so um, it, it's well-meaning sometimes, but still mishandled. We had a case, I mentioned this other places, but we had a case where we had a, um, a victim of child sexual abuse She'd, who had been abused in church. And um, when she, she was eight years old, eight years old. And when she went to the pastor to tell him what happened, his response was that um, to ask her what she was wearing that day. This child was eight years old. She was dressed for church. She was wearing a dress for church. And she was told a number of things, but one of the bottom line things she was told was, well, from now on, you knew wear pants to church because it'd make it more difficult for someone to assault you sexually. That's mishandling wow. sex abuse. And what that poor little girl heard that day was somehow this is your fault. Mm. And she's eight years old and she's being told by her pastor, basically, you were at fault because you weren't wearing the right clothes. You were at fault because somehow you, you shouldn't, you're tempting. You know, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. We had, we had a case uh, where a teenager um, was sexually assaulted by our youth pastor. And uh, she got tricked into letting him take her home. He went down a dirt road where nobody else was. And then um, when then it happened there, she goes home. It's, she's heartbroken. She goes to the church and tells the pastor the next day. And the pastor's first words to her actually tells what happens is it were, so you participated in this. Once again, here's a teenage girl alone, you know, on a dirt road, nobody around. Mm. She's got, I mean, if she screams and yells, nobody's going to hear her. She's got no chance. And yet that was the first question. So you participated in this. It, it, it double shamed her at that moment. It was like, she's trying to, make something tell the truth and and uh, and it put her on the defensive it's just this is the kind of stuff that that i don't know that those folks thought about what they were saying but it, it so harmed them and i had no idea someone would ask that question and and yet it happens quite frequently apparently and um and so 
I didn't realize both the, the trauma that's caused by the abuse itself, but the secondary trauma, sometimes actually more harmful, caused by people saying and doing the wrong things, not believing them or think or, or saying they're, you know, why did you, why were you wearing what you were wearing? Why, why did you tempt him? Things like that. And it's just heartbreaking. And you see the devastation on these folks' lives. I mean, years and years later, it's still affecting them in harmful ways. Um, I didn't know any, I didn't know that that was going on. And it is. Um, we also learned that when someone's abused sexually, it, whether it's a boy or a girl, that, I mean, either way, um, there, there's some, that, that trauma is, is something that it, your body responds with certain enzymes. I don't know the exact terminology, but basically that trauma stays with you forever. This side of heaven, your, your, your body remembers that trauma and you, it, you have um, enzymes you have to deal with the rest of your life. It's just not easy. It's tough. It's difficult. I had no idea that that was the case. I, I, I knew sexual abuse was bad. I knew you, know, you, you don't want anything to happen to your kids, all this stuff. But I did not realize the depth of trauma that's caused and how it's a double trauma when it's at the church. Hmm. Wow. You know, your team um, this past year, they, you brought forth some recommendations for uh, for churches to implement in the prevention and also caring well uh, for survivors. Uh, and now y'all have shifted gears uh, to more uh, implementation. Talk with us a little bit about what that shift uh, is all about. All right. So one of the things that um, that we did is come up with some recommendations. But back in April, before we even put out the recommendations, we had a meeting with all the state convention task force groups that had formed back in the fall after the Nashville convention and after the task force, the SBC task force was, was named. And um, one of my personal beliefs is that we can make some reforms in Nashville that are important for the executive committee. We can establish some, some protocols there the database should be national. So all those things are important. But in my belief, the most important way that the work that's been done this past year and being done this year, the work can be done in state conventions, like in our own state where there is a task force. Uh, DJ is, is um, important, is, is directing, is leading that task force. There are several folks, lay people and pastors together working on that one. But in state conventions is where the key, this, and the local church is where the key is. Because I think if you ask every pastor, okay, so do you want sexual abuse happening in your church? They're all going to say, no, we never want to have sexual abuse happening in our churches. But we don't realize, people don't realize, predators look for churches. They look for places that are high trust. And you got to trust people in church, right? You want to trust people in church. And predators know that. And so... Local churches oftentimes are, are, are unaware of how evil this thing is and how evil often dresses up as someone good. There are people that are, that are um, ordained to ministry that are flat out on this issue evil. And they're, they're predators are looking for a way to take advantage of people. And I didn't want to believe that, but the facts tell us that that's true. And so 
and the local church level, we want to stop this and we want to help local churches deal with this. So in April, we had this meeting with all the state task forces and we've been con contacting th with them since our state task force is working right now. And what we're trying to do is help them produce uh, the absolute best standards for local churches of any size, whether it's a mega church or you got 10 people. We want every church to be able to say, we, we have taken precautions to, to prevent sexual abuse happening in our church. And we're going to take steps to help survivors of sexual abuse, if it does happen, to get to get healing and justice, both those things. So my belief is that, that right now we're working on this implementation task force, but that what happens in local churches, local associations, and state conventions is critical. What happens in Nashville and, and at the SBC level is important, but if all we do is that stuff and never get to the local church, we've, we've wasted our time. We've got to help local churches be able to deal rightly with this to help prevent it, because again, um, prevention is the most important part, but also to help people who've been abused. But I, another fact I didn't know until uh, last year is that one-fourth of every adult, every of adult women, one-fourth, if you're an adult woman, one-fourth of all adult women have had some kind of sexual abuse in their lifetimes. And between one-fifth and one-sixth men by the time you're an adult. Wow. So on a typical Sunday, even if the abuse didn't happen in your church, if you got a if you got a hundred women in your church, the likelihood is 25 of them have had sexual abuse happen to them at some point in their lifetime. So wow. even if it didn't happen in your church, if you want to be a pastor who ministers to people, you got to understand there's a significant number of folks in your church, men and women, who have been abused sexually at some point in their lifetime. And if you're not aware of that, you, then the likelihood is they they may not ever um, they may not ever get the healing they need, but they may never be able to truly um, be able to be at home and feel safe, telling their story, even even sharing the heartache. And, and they need a church family that says, we care about people that are, that are abused and have been abused, and we're going to be a safe place for you. And wow. I think that's a critical piece. Well, as we uh, think of, you know, this, this uh, issue, especially in the, in the arena of the local church advancing the Great Commission, um, why is this so important uh, for the advancement of the Great Commission? Uh, what, what's the critical points here? that help us as a, as a, as a church understand the great importance here of advancing the great commission. All right. There are two things right off the bat that come to mind. The first of which is if, if, if we were to actually live the great commission, you got to be disciples first. And, and so every church needs to make sure we are, we, we have, we are living Christ-like lives. So if there's abuse going on, you got to stop it. You got to prevent it. And, if we've mishandled abuse, we've got to get that right. So I think it's critical for us, if we're going to be a faithful witness of Christ, to be Christ-like. And Christ is not going to tolerate abuse. He's not going to tolerate mistreating the uh, victims of abuse. So I think, I think right there off the bat, I think it's, it's, uh, it's part of who we are as Christian people. It's part of uh, Micah 6.8, where we want to, to uh, do justice and love mercy, walk humbly with God. I think 
that's if you're going to serve his kingdom, you're going to be part of uh, an evangelistic movement to help reach lost people. You got to have a heart that's right on this issue as, as we follow Christ with our lives. That's that's part of the deal. So I think I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is this. If it's true that one fourth of all the adult women in your church have have uh, have had some kind of sexual abuse happen to them over their course of their lifetime, it's also true of everybody in your community. And that that means there yeah. are thousands of folks who've been yeah. abused in some way, shape, or form sexually, and they're probably not in church. And there may be nowhere they can tell their story. But if our churches become places that are safe for sexual abuse survivors, that, that minister to sexual abuse survivors, that care about survivors. Just think of the opportunities that are there. Because many of these people have been so wounded that they, they, they're not looking for anything when it comes to church. But if we as churches become a safe place, if we as churches actually care about and reach out, you can, there's a mission world right in front of us in our communities that have been have suffered from this abuse and if we become the people who are the ones that, that are both first of all standing up for survivors and don't doing all we can to help them but also preventing abuse in different ways and abuse includes sex trafficking there's all kind of i mean you just can't imagine the kind of abuse that's taking place in our world around us so i think our churches have greater great commission opportunities to reach people if we understand there's a whole group of people who've been so wounded and only the gospel, only the gospel can bring the hope they really need. Only the grace of God can really bring the healing that they, that every sexual abuse victim needs. And granted you need, you need uh, trauma informed conversation, trauma informed counseling, that kind of thing. But in the end, only God's grace can bring hope to survivors of sexual abuse. And we have it. We've got the message. We've got the opportunity. So I think I think as far I think as far as advancing the Great Commission, it, healthy churches best advance the Great Commission. Healthy like following Christ, but also churches that have a healthy uh, love and appreciation for survivors of sex abuse have an opportunity to reach some lost people that no one else is ever going to get because there wow. there's one fourth of the female population is is uh, is right there with that in their background and the gospel is the only really good answer for them. In the end. That's a perfect word. I mean, we have got to get this right as the church. Um, I, I think that lives are on the line uh, in the future. And I think that lives are on the line right now. I mean, you know, when you, when you have the reputation to be the church that um, that loves and cares for other people who have been abused, who have been broken, um, it changes your reputation. And, um, and all of a sudden you become the, the, the church or the people in the community, when they talk about you, those people care about me. They care about my brokenness. Those people can help me. And I, I just believe that um, your work um, matters, Marshall. I just appreciate the work that you've given towards this. Um, uh, any, any last words that you'd like to give our audience? Well, a couple. One is some folks say, what about the abusers? What, what about them? Well, they need the gospel too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not saying that we shouldn't care about those that abuse, that abuse others, but we don't tolerate the abuse, but we still care that the gospel would change the hearts and lives of those who are abusers as well. Um, but we, 
caring about them and leading them to the gospel doesn't mean we, we want to tolerate the sin. So um, I've had that question asked from time to time. And, and I, I do want to say, oh, yes, we want God's grace to touch every life. And, and if someone confesses that sin and gets their life right, that's the best way. I'd rather them be, get that than, than um, anything else. But we do care about the abuse as well. But um, our main focus, obviously, is preventing the abuse from ever happening in the first place. Mm, so good. Well, thanks, Marshall, for being on this uh, this podcast today. And um, uh, if you'd like to uh, connect with him, I'm sure you could. You find him on the web there, and email, and and uh, we also have uh, some different links that that would be helpful uh, with uh, some of the recommendations that have come forth with that. As you um, look at your own church and see what you can do to help prevent and care well for for those who are survivors. So, Marshall, thanks for being on this podcast. Great to be with you. Always a pleasure to be with you. And hope uh, I can do whatever I can to help you guys down the road. That's great. Well, we believe that every life counts and that each church can advance the Great Commission. Well, until every life is saturated and transformed by the hope of the gospel, advance. Thanks for listening to the Advanced Leadership Podcast from the South Carolina Baptist Convention. This South Carolina Baptist Convention podcast is made possible through the cooperative program giving of South Carolina Baptist churches. For more information, visit scbaptist.org.